millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Napoleon Assist. It's November, which means it's the start of my long-heralded Napoleon month. The next few weeks will feature episodes relating very specifically to Napoleon and a wide variety of aspects, including his leadership and his legacy. To start us off this week, I wanted to take a look at the life of a man who is shrouded in myth. I want to dissect the mythologizing and the demonizing to drill down into what Napoleon achieved and offer some thoughts both on what, in my opinion, he was like as an individual and what the subtleties are behind his actions and his impact on society. From the start, I'm going to be honest with you, if you are one of Napoleon's greatest fans, you aren't going to like this, because I'm not one of those who subscribes to the Napoleonic cult. There are those out there who will refuse to hear the slightest word said against him, and who demonstrate a tendency, almost like arch-Trump fans, to dismiss as fake news anything which contradicts their idolisation of Napoleon as a messiah-like figure. Equally, if you despise the emperor, then you probably aren't going to think that what I've got to say goes far enough. I acknowledge that my views on Napoleon were definitely shaped by the way in which I approached the period through the Peninsula War. When your first contact with a historical figure demonstrates their ability to betray an ally, summarily annex independent states for not accepting your economic policy dictations, and leads to the slaughter of thousands of civilians, it's very hard to come back from that and suddenly start to view Napoleon as a great individual. That said, my views have mellowed over time. I'm still a Napoleon sceptic, but I feel that there are important attributes and successes that should be recognised. To be honest, having said that, most people have probably switched off already. But let's start with a very brief overview of his life, and then start to unpick the myth and reality. Napoleon Bonaparte was only French by chance. He was born on Corsica in August 1769, and it was only in that year that the island became part of France, having previously belonged to Genoa, 
and therefore there was a strong republican sentiment on the island that influenced much of Napoleon's early life. Napoleon was the fourth child to Carlo Bonaparte and Maria Letitia Ramolino, though two of those siblings died in infancy, and in time he had six younger siblings as well. Napoleon always seems to have been a fiercely competitive individual, perhaps understandably in a large family. Maria is thought to have been quite a typical Corsican matriarch or mother figure, instilling her children with a sense of tough love. The family had been closely linked to Corsican independence, but in time Carlo, who was a lawyer, ingratiated himself with the Bourbon monarchy, perhaps seeing that the writing was on the wall, and became a court representative. Napoleon was, for many years, staunchly pro-Corsican independence, and it has been suggested that this caused friction within the household, and even led Napoleon to despise his father. Whether you believe that, as is so often the case with details of Napoleon's life, and particularly his early life, depends on which sources you are prepared to trust. At the age of nine, Napoleon left the family home to attend a church school in Autun, but then transferred to the military academy at Brienne-le-Chateau before going on to the École Militaire in Paris. Napoleon stood out at military school. His Mediterranean complexion, the fact that he didn't really start to speak French until the age of 10, his thick Corsican accent and his fierce advocacy of Corsican independence were all things that he was bullied for. He became something of a loner, taking consolation in his books, and he seems to have particularly taken to reading about the exploits of antiquity's greatest commanders, such as Caesar and Alexander the Great. Napoleon trained as an artilleryman, something which would have significance throughout his career, and after graduating from the École Militaire in 1785, he spent a quiet few years as a second lieutenant in Lafayre's artillery regiment. With the revolution in 1789, Napoleon received leave to return to Corsica and spent the next couple of years in a complex three-way struggle between the independence, royalist and revolutionary movements. His great hero, the Corsican nationalist Paoli, who is thought to have been viewed as a father figure by Napoleon, actually rejected him, despising his father for ingratiating himself into Bourbon society. The Bonaparte family had to flee their ancestral home in Corsica, forcing Napoleon to commit himself to life as a Frenchman rather than as a Corsican. Napoleon's first lucky break came with the Siege of Toulon in 1793. He had already come to the attention of the revolutionary government, not least Augustin Robespierre, brother of the more famous revolutionary leader Maximilien Robespierre, for publishing a pro-revolutionary pamphlet, and Napoleon used the fact that he had the ear of the government to criticise the commander of the pro-revolutionary forces which were besieging the town. Toulon had risen in favour of the Bourbon monarchy and was being supported by the British Royal Navy. Napoleon, in the first demonstration of the incredible energy that would characterise his career, reorganised the artillery, sourcing everything that he needed to turn it into an effective fighting force. Although he faced fierce opposition from his superiors, who disliked that the government favourite might outshine their achievements, he did very well, securing promotion and demonstrating a potent mix of competency, energy and bravery. At one point, he was wounded in the thigh, storming a British-held position, and there was even talk of needing to amputate the leg. Just imagine how different history would have been if that had actually happened. Napoleon's plan was unquestionably the right one at Toulon. By capturing high ground overlooking the bay, his artillery were able to threaten the British fleet, assisting the rebels. The British immediately withdrew, having failed to lay plans for the destruction 
of the French fleet, which they had captured when Toulon rose up, leaving the majority of it for the revolutionary forces to recapture when resistance crumbled. Having played a vital role in the operation, Napoleon was promoted to Brigadier General and spent a brief spell as commander of the artillery for France's Army of Italy. He was just 24 years old at the time. Despite the promising start, though, Napoleon's career stalled. He had been so closely associated with the Robespierres that he was regarded with suspicion when the government changed during the Thermidorian reaction in July 1794. Although he managed to escape prosecution, the bad luck kept on coming when, in 1795, he was assigned an infantry command to deal with an uprising in the Vendée. He turned it down, pleading ill health, but in reality knowing that there were no career-advancing prospects to be found in waging a long, tedious and bloody civil war. Napoleon's refusal, though, left him unemployed and resulted in him being removed from the list of generals. In October 1795, though, he received what, for him at least, was another lucky break. A royalist uprising in Paris led to one of his mentors, Paul Barras, a leading member of government, calling on his assistance to defend the Tuileries Palace from the rebels, where the government was based. Napoleon organised artillery to defend it, a task which required him to fire on those rebels, some of whom were armed, others of whom were women and children. It's an incident which has famously been called his whiff of grape shot, not a comment that he made, despite what is often claimed. According to some estimates, as many as 1,400 royalist rebels were killed. Napoleon himself doesn't seem to have been particularly interested in the numbers. The remainder of the rebels quite simply fled. As a reward, Napoleon was given command of the Army of Italy, which he took up a couple of days after marrying Josephine in March 1796. Josephine was a former mistress of Barras and wasn't particularly devoted to Napoleon, rapidly carrying on with her own lovers. Napoleon, meanwhile, achieved enormous fame and glory in Italy, as well as a great deal of wealth. He earned the nickname the Italian Whirlwind during his campaign in the region in 1796-7. Victories came thick and fast. Montenotte, Dago, Mondovi, Codogno, Lodi, Mantua, Bassano, Arcole and Rivoli. By the end of it all, the whole of northern Italy was under French control, and Napoleon took matters into his own hands by creating the Cisalpine Republic and effectively adding foreign policy to his list of duties as a general. After such phenomenal success, and having made sure that news of his achievements was well publicised in France, Napoleon presented a bit of a problem, arguably being too popular. As a result, when he suggested an expedition to capture Egypt, the Republican government jumped at the opportunity to pack him off on a distant expedition where he couldn't cause any trouble for them. The Egyptian campaign was primarily a military affair, but it did also embrace some scientific elements. Fascination with ancient Egypt, Egyptian culture was high in France at the time, and he took care to take experts with him to study the region's history. The military plan, though, was, perhaps characteristically for Napoleon, exceptionally bold. Egypt had recently risen up against its Ottoman rulers and was in turmoil. The French would therefore annex the region before using it as a base from which to threaten Britain's hold on India. Initially, on land at least, the expedition went well, with Alexandria and Cairo being occupied and a victory secured over the Mamluks at the Battle of the Pyramids. But the expedition was left marooned in Egypt when Horatio Nelson's British fleet destroyed the fleet supporting Napoleon at the Battle of the Nile. 
Upon learning of a planned Ottoman invasion, Napoleon launched a preemptive strike up into modern-day Syria. After taking Jaffa, Turkish prisoners were executed. It is said that Napoleon could not feed them, and that the soldiers in question had previously been captured and broken an agreement not to fight the French if released. The Syrian campaign stalled at the Siege of Acre, and with his army suffering from the plague, Napoleon was forced to withdraw from Egypt, having really achieved nothing at all. Soldiers who were terminally ill with the plague were euthanised in a move which sped up the French retreat and prevented the men from falling into the hands of the vengeful Ottomans. However, Napoleon did not stay in Egypt. With news arriving of government failures and instability at home, Napoleon abandoned his army and returned to France to pursue his political ambitions, something which he did in almost complete secrecy. In a coup in November 1799, known as the 18 Brumaire, after the revolutionary calendar, Napoleon ousted the Directory, the old French revolutionary government. Napoleon was by no means the only one involved, and he was encouraged, notably by Emmanuel Sayer, though Napoleon was the figurehead. The coup itself was actually a bit shambolic. Napoleon walked into a meeting of the Council of 500 and received a very hostile reception, with his nerves seeming to fail him. After declaring that the revolution was over, he was assaulted, and it was his brother Lucien who saved the day by calling in the troops which Napoleon had stationed around the council chamber in order to expel the deputies. A consulate system was then set up with three leaders or consuls who were meant to rotate with time. Napoleon was installed as first consul, but then remained in that role, ousting CA and consolidating his power solely into his own hands. In time, he installed himself as consul for life, and then in 1804, crowned himself Emperor of France. And I mean crowned himself quite literally. The Pope was in attendance, but Napoleon took the crown and placed it upon his own head before crowning Josephine. As leader of France, he set out to rewrite the constitution and reformed everything from education to the regional government and even the honours system in the country, again demonstrating that almost frenetic energy to get things done. At the same time, Napoleon busied himself by restoring the conquests which France had lost in his absence, with a notable victory at Marengo in northern Italy in June 1800, whilst Moreau won at Hohenlinden in December, which paved the way for an easy peace treaty, the Peace of Amiens. With breaches on both sides of that treaty, war broke out again in 1803, and from the time of becoming First Consul, the story of Napoleon's life is, in large part, the story of the Napoleonic Wars. Coalition after coalition was formed by the British and successively beaten. The Third Coalition was effectively destroyed in a crushing victory at Austerlitz in 1805. The Prussians torn apart in the War of the Fourth Coalition with victories at the twin battles of Jena and Auerstadt in 1806. The creation of the Continental System to bring... Britain to heal by starving it of trade, though that plan of course backfired, the invasion of the Iberian Peninsula in 1807-8, to and the destruction of the Austrians at Wagram in 1809. In 1810, having divorced Josephine when it became apparent that she could not bear him an heir, Napoleon married the 19-year-old Austrian princess Marie-Louise, great-niece of Marie Antoinette, in a move which he hoped would result in greater acceptance of his dynasty from the other European powers. They had one child, born in 1811, but the couple separated upon Napoleon being exiled to Elba in 1814, and they never saw each other again. 
As the Peninsular War rumbled on, going from stalemate to bad and then much worse, Napoleon became preoccupied with Russia. Despite having formed an alliance with Russia at the Treaty of Tilsit in 1807, it was becoming clear that the Russian Tsar was under pressure to adopt a more aggressive stance against Napoleon, and the country withdrew from the continental system, prompting Napoleon to launch his disastrous invasion of Russia in 1812. Napoleon's Grand Armée, which went into Russia in June 1812, was the largest ever seen. By some estimates, it was almost 700,000 strong, although half a million is the number more generally cited. Sucked too deep into a country which had learnt not to risk fighting a pitched battle against Napoleon, the Emperor was unable to achieve that crushing victory that would force the Russians to sue for peace, as he had managed to achieve on so many other occasions. When the Russians burned Moscow to the ground in order to deny it as a place for Napoleon's army to shelter over the winter, it became clear that there was little option but to retreat through a gruelling Russian winter. Harried by Cossacks the whole way, around 10% of the Grand Armée made it back to Poland alive. The destruction of the Grand Armée galvanised the continent to form the Sixth Coalition. Despite the amazing feat of rebuilding an army in a matter of months, courtesy of conscription, Napoleon was defeated at the Battle of the Nations in 1813, and France itself was invaded in 1814. Although he led an incredible defensive campaign that year, he was ultimately forced to abdicate in April 1814, and was exiled to Elba. That was not the end of the Napoleonic story, though. As I covered back in June, Napoleon returned from exile, ousted the restored Bourbon monarchy, but was then defeated at Waterloo. With France being reinvaded, he surrendered to the British and was then sent into a much harsher exile on St Helena in the middle of the Atlantic. Napoleon was in ill health by this point, and his time on St Helena was not made any easier by the British governor, who refused him basic courtesies, such as calling him emperor. He ultimately died of a tear in his esophagus caused by a huge stomach tumour in 1821, aged 51. Now that is a horrifically oversimplified and rushed run-through of Napoleon's life, which doesn't, in all honesty, uh, do the guy's achievements and his failings justice, but it does at least give you a vague overview, which will be useful as we discuss his life in the coming weeks. How should we remember Napoleon? Well, I like a comment that was made by Robert Pocock during the Waterloo Remembered series, where he said that actually he didn't like the notion of telling people what they should remember. That's for people to decide for themselves. There is certainly a fierce debate on the question, though. Part of the issue is that Napoleon was able to dictate his own memoirs before he died, which allowed him to rewrite history with one eye on posterity, and those effectively propaganda comments have certainly had a huge impact on people's interpretations. Like most historical discussions, there are basically three camps. Napoleon fans, Napoleon haters, and those who are somewhere in the middle. The trouble with Napoleon, though, is that he is a historical Marmite. My experience is that the people who are vocal either love him or they hate him, and comments from the middle ground are pretty limited, and crucially, all of those positions, or certainly the two extreme positions, are really very entrenched. If you try to have a reasonable discussion about Napoleon on social media and suggest to either side that there is light and shade when it comes to his character, it generally descends into an exercise of hurling insults. Those who occupy the middle ground often prefer to keep themselves to themselves when it comes to offering their stance, and to be honest, 
sometimes I don't entirely blame them. At its worst, you have the Napoleonic cult, which I mentioned before, consisting of people who, and I mean this quite literally, worship the man and will not hear a single bad word said against him. Their attitude, as I say, isn't entirely dissimilar to what you see from the ultra-loyal Trump fan base, where there is an excuse for literally every single unpalatable action and nothing can ever be done to hold Napoleon to account. Now, it is important to acknowledge that context is absolutely everything in history, and events have to be set within those contexts, and I'm going to talk about some of those in a moment. But at the same time, you do have to ask yourself, how many times do you excuse someone's actions before acknowledging that they might not actually be the innocent party in everything that happened to them in their life? I will also quite readily acknowledge that on the anti-Napoleon side, there are people who are equally vehement and take their arguments way too far. One common one out there is that Napoleon was a 19th century version of Hitler. It's an argument based partly on the fact that Napoleon was a dictator, he occupied most of Europe, ran an authoritarian regime, ran a secret police, and launched a disastrous invasion of Russia. With the greatest respect to those who hold that opinion, it just doesn't hold water. The comparisons don't work on many levels. The similarities are really just superficial. Politically, the overlap is very limited, and the motivations and the styles of the two leaders were very different. There is, as I say, a middle ground, and that is where I want to take this discussion over the next few weeks, looking at Napoleon warts and all. I know, as I'm doing this, that it will likely kick up a hornet's nest, but that's fine so long as people come out of this having learnt a little bit, and had a constructive discussion. I was particularly impressed by the attitude, and I don't mean that in a patronising way, taken by the British Bonapartist Committee when they delved into Twitter a few weeks ago. You can find them yourselves at BritBon.com. Initially, they did what a lot of fiercely pro-Napoleon fans tend to do, and entrenched their position by blocking someone who vehemently, but respectfully, disagreed with them on Napoleon's legacy. The next day, though, following on from a separate discussion that I was having with them, they actually unblocked the individual, apologised, and said that they felt that it was important to engage with people on both sides of the argument. And it's that level of maturity, really, that I feel has been missing at times from the discussions online. And I hope that in some small way, we might be able to use this as a way to move towards that. So... What's my stance? Because you're probably wanting me to climb down off the fence and give you my take. Well, Jeffrey Ellis put it best when he said that people's stance on Napoleon is likely to be dictated by their political outlook and whether they stand in admiration of strong authority figures. I'll be honest, I've never been one for forming emotional opinions on people from history. If you are in someone's camp, then it becomes harder to think analytically about what the evidence tells you. Rory Muir has made the point that terms like genius can actually be unhelpful for those kinds of reasons. People often say to me, oh, you don't like Napoleon because you're a Wellington fan. Actually, no, I'm not. And I'm very frank about his failings. This isn't about adopting one polarised position or another, because history isn't black and white. It's not a two-way choice. And you can see someone's attributes as well as recognising their issues. When it comes to Napoleon, I have a huge amount of respect for him. 
and I use the word respect deliberately, the scale of his achievements was incredible. And I think even the harshest critics would recognise that he had limitless ambition and phenomenal drive to make that ambition a reality. He was an enormously skilled soldier that cannot be taken away from him. His ability to read a battlefield was exceptional, and he knew how to pin his enemy down, draw in their reserves, exploit their weaknesses, and then deliver a shattering blow to destroy the force entirely. He was incredible at manoeuvring corps rapidly, so that they could strike on his opponent's flank and rear, where they were least expecting it. He deserves his reputation as one of history's great commanders. Whether you're looking at the early stage of his career in Italy, where he consistently outmarched, outmaneuvered and outfought the Austrians, or as late as 1814, where he again demonstrated that ability to pivot, strike, pivot and strike again when fending off the Allied invasion of northern France. Even Waterloo was an incredible display of finding the chink in his enemy's armour and then exploiting it. And it's worth remembering that that strategy came within a hair's breadth of paying off. That said, Napoleon does sometimes get credit where he doesn't deserve it. One myth I sometimes see being peddled is that he invented the core system. In fact, if you put uh, core, French core into Wikipedia, you will see the claim that it was invented by Napoleon. That's not really true. Napoleon benefited from a number of changes of thinking that were happening pre-revolution, particularly by Guibert and Borset. Napoleon's skill was not as an innovator, but as an implementer of that system, and he instilled it across the French army with great effect. Another false claim is that he brought more artillery to bear than ever before. That's not actually true. The ratio was usually about the same as it had always been, at around three guns to every 1,000 troops. Napoleon was great at using his artillery, but he didn't have more of it than in previous armies. Another of Napoleon's great skills was as a propagandist and as a motivator of his men, particularly on a personal level. Napoleon exuded charisma. There's no getting away from that fact. And it's widely known that many of his soldiers adored him. He had an ability to connect with them as individuals, very unlike commanders, such as Wellington, who were much more aloof. He knew how to push people's buttons, whether it was an affectionate tug of the ear, whether it was speaking to them in person around a campfire. He would deliberately withhold praise even on occasions in order to make certain units fight harder in the next battle and then duly honour that promise to praise them when they did in fact deliver. The flip side to that was, of course, that by exploiting propaganda and getting inside people's heads, you can make the argument that he was manipulating them. He was lying to them. In, in the case of his propaganda quite often. And it's things like that where the light and the shade come out, because we're looking at different sides of the same coin here. By motivating someone to fight, you are inherently making them risk their life so that they may potentially die for your aims and ultimately your achievements. Whilst Napoleon connected with his men, the evidence suggests that he wasn't particularly concerned about the losses his army sustained, provided it produced the desired outcome. When reviewing one battlefield, he is said to have remarked that one night in Paris will replace them all. It's a very cold statement, which shows a complete lack of regard for human life, and comments like that can't be ignored any more than his achievements can be. This was not a man who cared about the lives of his men, if the ends justified the means. One of the other achievements of Napoleon's reign was the Civil Code, sometimes known as the Napoleonic Code. I'm a bit more sceptical when it comes to the code. 
don't get me wrong, it was a very significant achievement and France undoubtedly needed a unified set of laws. It needed stability after multiple failed constitutions and Napoleon's rule, to an extent, brought that stability, albeit at a cost, not least in human lives. The Code was also important for the way that it preserved some of the liberties that had been gained during the Revolution, but that's where the issues start to emerge for me, because it only preserved some of the benefits of the Revolution. Yes, universal male suffrage was retained. Yes, the legal system was significantly improved, and it was in dire straits before the Revolution. But there were also those who lost out. Women found themselves in a grossly patriarchal society, completely beholden to their fathers or husbands, unable to secure divorces, and with their property summarily becoming their husbands when they married. That was a major step back, and let's bear in mind that affected half of the French population, not some small minority. Equally, Napoleon oversaw the reintroduction of slavery across the French Empire, something which had been abolished during the Revolution. It was under his orders that the former French colony of Saint-Domingue was recaptured after the Slave Rebellion, which uh, saw it gain independence under Toussaint L'Ouverture, and it's very difficult to come to any other conclusion than that L'Ouverture's treatment, once he was captured, was absolutely appalling. It's those two examples, particularly the, the issues of slavery and relating to women's rights, which make me sceptical about the extent to which Napoleon was actually a child of the revolution, as is sometimes claimed. The decrees of Napoleon's reign strike me as a balancing act of what he thought was both preferable and doable. A return to the old ways of the Ancien Régime would not only have caused uprisings, it would have been deeply impractical. Ancien Régime society was effectively crumbling in France by the time of the revolution. Napoleon was an intelligent man, and he knew that. But in the Code, particularly, I'd argue that we see Napoleon cherry-picking what he liked from the Revolution and forging his own path where he felt he had a better idea. We particularly see that in his leadership style, something much closer to the authoritarian leadership of other nations in Europe at the time than that of true liberty of the people. Although he was an advocate of promotion based on competence, it is very noticeable that it was his family who acquired the thrones of the monarchies that he toppled, Joseph being given first Naples and then Spain. His sister Elisa was made Grand Duchess of Tuscany. Caroline, another of his sisters, was married to Murat, one of his marshals, and between them they were then given Naples when Joseph was packed off to Spain. Louis got Holland, Jerome got Westphalia. They were picked because they were assumed to be loyal to Napoleon, not because they would necessarily do a good job, as Joseph proved in Spain. Equally, the Légion d'honneur was predominantly awarded to members of the armed forces. When the first large-scale awards were made in 1804, of the first 2,000 given, only a dozen went to civilians, although this imbalance was improved over time. So whilst social origin was not considered a barrier to success, which was a major step forward, and was something that had been gained from the revolution, the conception of what was worthy of merit was still pretty narrow, albeit with a shifted focus towards military exploits. We should also deal with the Napoleon the Democrat line. Napoleon held plebiscites on major constitutional changes, it's true. They were rigged, 
Malcolm Crook did an excellent piece of work on this nearly 20 years ago now in Michael Rowe's book on collaboration and resistance in Napoleonic Europe. Crook's work shows that there are huge problems with assuming that the majority of the population supported Napoleonic rule. In theory, all men over the age of 21 could vote, but, and I'm quoting Malcolm here, paupers and servants were probably excluded. Approximately 20% of the population were able to participate in the plebiscite. So that's not really truly democratic, and certainly not as democratic as some would have us believe. Turnout actually fell in the 1804 and 1815 plebiscites. Malcolm also found some interesting rigging of the turnout, and again, I'm going to quote him here. In 1804, General Monod wrote to the Minister of the Interior to inform him that, in order to present a mass vote representative of the population of Piedmont, I have ordered that voting should recommence in the département of the Po, Cecilia, and Dois. I have written to all the mayors, instructing them to reopen registers in all the churches. I have also invited the bishops to write to all the parish priests, urging them to make the people aware of the importance of voting. And I'm continuing to quote uh, Crook here. These efforts were evidently crowned with success, for the final number of votes rose from 17,000 to over 45,000. That same year, in De Sèvres, a suspiciously high turnout was the produce of a concerted campaign by the authorities, which sometimes permitted citizens to vote twice after the initial response had been judged insufficient. It gets worse than that, though. The 1800 plebiscite on Napoleon's seizure of power in the first place was notoriously badly manipulated. The vote in favour was summarily doubled to make it look more impressive, from 1.5 to 3 million. When you consider that the population of France in 1800 was about 30 million, you can see why people might have misgivings about the argument that he was truly democratic. I'm going to read you one more extract from Malcolm's work. Elements of fraud have also been detected in 1802, notably on the part of the prefect of the Seine-Inferieur, Jean-Claude Bugenot, who inflated his department returns by 20,000 affirmative votes and reduced the negative votes from 30 to 22. It was probably an isolated example where this plebiscite was concerned, but cheating was certainly much more widespread in 1804, when officials in at least six departments cooked the books to inflate support for the empire, including, once again, the incorrigible Bugenot at Rouen. In the Pyrenees Orientales, fraud took the crude form of adding digits to village totals in handwriting which was clearly counterfeit, yet no one in Paris either noticed or cared. So the numbers were fudged, and there is also evidence that when people voted in open registers, it's worth saying, they were encouraged to reconsider their decision. Now, people sometimes make the point that although there was fraud, we know that there would have been enough votes in favour anyway. But you have to consider the culture surrounding these votes. If officials are blatantly inflating, then other means must also have been used to encourage people to vote in what was deemed to be the correct way. In that kind of environment, the prospect of simply not voting rather than running the risk of some kind of punishment for voting the wrong way, is very high. Equally, the very pro-Napoleon folks love to turn around and say, ah, you're quick to criticise Napoleon, but what about Britain during this period? You're ignoring how bad things were there, because you're a British patriot steeped in your own nationalist interpretation of history. Actually, I'm not, because 
there is actually a very good point in there. Britain was not a true democracy by any means, in, certainly not in the way that we understand it today. In 1780, a pathetic 3% of England and Wales's population could vote. You had serious issues with boroughs, where some cities like Manchester and Birmingham had no MPs, whilst other regions had two, but had proportionately much smaller populations. But there is an important point here. Britain's very poor democratic record does not exonerate Napoleon from his flawed one. We could, and in fact we probably will, debate online whether an illusion of democracy that's rigged by the government is substantially any better than having virtually no democracy at all. I'd suggest that they're actually as bad as each other. And that's the point. Excusing Napoleon's behaviour by saying that other nations were just as bad doesn't suddenly make Napoleon's actions better or make him significantly better than his contemporaries in European society at the time. And it certainly doesn't make him any more of a democrat when only one outcome is deemed acceptable. Another important area of his reputation that we have to tackle is the man of peace argument. Surprising though it may seem for a conflict that bears his name, there are those out there who like to argue that Napoleon did not want war, that these wars were forced upon him by the duplicitous coalition powers, with Britain acting as the warmonger-in-chief. I'm afraid it's another argument that doesn't really stand up to historical scrutiny. And before anybody starts on the Britain was just as bad argument, yes, Britain did act pretty, sh pretty shamelessly during this conflict, and I'll cover that. But remember what I said, two wrongs don't make a right. There were occasions where the coalition powers moved first. The Austrian declaration of war in 1809 is a good example of that. And in some cases, Napoleon's actions were preemptive. He went into Russia knowing that war was coming at some point anyway. And yes, the Treaty of Amiens was broken by the British for their failure to evacuate Malta, though Napoleon was no less partisan. He was breaching treaties with other powers, and there's still debate about whether he could feasibly have evacuated his army from Egypt, as he was bound to, and therefore entered into it duplicitously. Waterloo is often cited as not being Napoleon's fault, in part because once he had de-exiled himself from Elba and usurped the King of France in what was basically a military coup, he then said that he didn't want war. Actually, that's quite right. He didn't want war, because he wasn't ready for it. The Allies weren't being warmongers in declaring war in 1815 because they deliberately declared war on Napoleon personally rather than the French people. It was Napoleon who had violated the terms of his exile, Napoleon who had toppled the French monarch, flawed as it undoubtedly was, and Napoleon who had installed himself on the throne of France. None of that happened by accident. Napoleon, as a deeply intelligent man, was completely aware of the potential consequences of his actions, and he can't have been surprised that the Allies weren't going to give him the time to rearm, and then perhaps declare war on his own terms. Because Napoleon was not shy about going to war when it suited him, Take the invasion of Egypt in 1798, or, more significantly, the invasion of Portugal in 1807 and stabbing his ally Spain in the back in 1808. These were not honourable actions from someone who did not want war. Equally, Napoleon was good at waging war. To not be willing to exploit that advantage would have been absurd. And he was offered peace. There were occasional attempts by Britain to offer peace terms, one of those, shortly before the Russian campaign, foundered because a non-negotiable British term was a Napoleon withdraw from Spain and Portugal, recognising the legitimate sovereigns. 
Napoleon said he'd do it for Portugal, but not for Spain. But take a look at a map of the Peninsula War in late 1811 and early 1812. Portugal was already liberated. He was basically telling Britain that they could have what they'd already achieved, which is a bit like paying somebody with their own coin. Negotiations just don't work like that. Equally, in 1813, he was offered peace terms. They were quite generous, actually. He turned them down and did so again in 1814. He preferred to fight on, risking everything on achieving a crushing victory that would allow him to dictate the terms. And as a result, I find the man of peace argument very hard to believe. We also have to consider the impact of these conflicts. The French weren't angels when they went into Prussia in 1806, Spain and Portugal between 1808 and 1813, and Russia in 1812. They plundered, murdered and raped. Yes, the coalition powers at times did very similar things. Take the Prussians in 1815 looking for vengeance and having to be held back. I've gone to great lengths to emphasise the appalling conduct of British troops in the aftermath of the siege of Badahoff. Amongst the darkest episodes from the conflict is the massacre of the Ottoman prisoners at Jaffa. Many estimates for this are overblown. Although 8,000 is sometimes put out there, the figure is probably more like half that. Napoleon's defenders are quick to point out that these soldiers had previously been released from uh, captivity on the condition of not fighting against the French again, and that Napoleon didn't have the means to feed them. What isn't factored into that argument is not only that such condition of release is quite naive, but the women and children were amongst those slaughtered. And when it comes to feeding them, the reason for it is that Napoleon needed to prioritise feeding his own army, which meant living off the land. So in other words, his supply system in an arid region of the world wasn't good enough, which itself is problematic for a man of Napoleon's reputation. It's important to recognise the cause and effect here too. If a nation is consistently invading other nations, as France was, if it is consistently removing national artwork, stripping the countryside to feed its armies, and openly recognises civilians as legitimate targets of war, which the Grande Armée did do, not just in 1812, but as part of their kind of inner culture, as Michael Hughes has pointed out in his book Forging the Grande Armée, with reference to the building of that force before the Austerlitz campaign. With all of that put together, it's not altogether surprising if other nations retaliated in kind when the tables were turned. As leader of the French nation, and more crucially the French armies, Napoleon set the agenda. If the French hadn't invaded Spain and Portugal, would there have been the starvation and civilian casualties of war that we saw in the Peninsula War? Of course not. At the very least, when it comes to what happened when Napoleon invaded other nations, the buck, to some significant extent, in my opinion, stops with him. People will say, but you're ignoring the British Empire. Believe me, I'm really not. I'm no apologist for empire, but the suggestion that because Britain committed atrocities in its overseas empire, that somehow makes what happened in Napoleon's European empire okay, is a pretty warped argument. Like I keep saying, two wrongs do not make a right. It is right that we acknowledge the brutality of empire. Some will disagree with my views on the British Empire, but there's no denying that it was built on arrogant supposition, racist ideas of superiority, and was a means of economic exploitation with those at the time attempting to justify it with ideas of civilising, in inverted commas, indigenous peoples by replacing their cultures with Western ones. 
So yes, the British Empire was in many respects truly awful, but one of the few ways that Napoleon's empire differs is that it quite simply wasn't built on racist principles. There is also the death to consider. France was bled dry by the Napoleonic Wars. It is estimated that as many as a million Frenchmen were killed, a higher proportion of the population than were killed by the First World War. I've seen estimates of 5 million killed in total, civilians and soldiers, but in truth, it's impossible to know. Between combat deaths, disease, long-term health issues from injuries, murder and starvation, it would be impossible to come to a figure with any degree of certainty. But the point is that war with France led to death across the continent. Napoleon's phenomenal empire was built on blood, and whilst admiring the scale of what he achieved is completely natural, it is all too easy to forget the human cost of that achievement. So there you have it. Napoleon, a complex, charismatic leader who cannot be pigeonholed. He manages to fit all of the stereotypes and none of them, depending on which evidence you want to bring to bear in forming your opinion. There's enough to justify the hero interpretation and the villain, but the reality is much more subtle. Napoleon was not a perfect human being, because there is no such thing as the perfect person. Human beings are not one-dimensional characters. Napoleon was hugely driven, and I think he probably genuinely believed that he was acting in France's best interests, in the sense that he saw both his and France's interests to be the same thing. Some will say he was arrogant. Of course he was. Look at what he achieved. It would be incredible if he'd remained humble. He was certainly driven by glory. He was an exceptional military commander and a remarkable motivator. He was a reformer, but his political stance was more complex than has often been acknowledged. Neither truly pro-revolutionary, nor a return to the Ancien Regime. I want to be clear that, despite my stance on the Emperor, I completely understand why people might like Napoleon, and I fully respect that they are every bit as entitled to their opinion as I am to mine. My issue has always been with those who will not acknowledge that there is any discussion to be had here, who will not acknowledge the complexities, and who will scream their opinion without ever taking the time to listen to contrary views or back their interpretation with credible evidence. Ultimately, whether you like Napoleon or loathe him is something for you to decide. Everyone has their own take, and folks' decision is likely to be down to what attributes each person values. Whatever your thoughts, I hope that the last 40 or so minutes will have encouraged you to embrace a more diverse image of Napoleon. In truth, though, I expect that that is a slightly forlorn hope. The positions, at least on the two extremities, are just too entrenched. But there is a busy month's worth of content here at the Napoleon Assist, which gives us the opportunity to drill down into specifics and hopefully have a reasonable conversation about the man. With Europe going into lockdown, I am changing some of the plans of what I was going to bring you in a push to try and give people a bit more to enjoy during the challenges of lockdown. That therefore means that the programme might change at relatively short notice, so please bear with me. But I am looking at going twice a week for the next month for your enjoyment, something that I'm more than a little apprehensive about, having just stepped away from some projects in order to give myself more time to finish off the PhD. What I'm basically saying is just watch this space. This topic is such an impassioned debate that I know people are going to want to have their say. Before we get to that, though, I just want to chip in with one important point first. Keep it civil. Everyone is on edge at the moment. People's emotions are running high. 
There is enough to worry about in the world already without people getting into ugly confrontations from behind their keyboards, lobbing more insults and trolling one another. So whatever your stance is, I want to urge people to take a leaf out of the British Bonapartist Committee's book. Engage in a discussion. Respect that people are going to see things differently to you and that that is their right and privilege. This is what history is all about. People can look at exactly the same set of source material and come to completely different interpretations based on what they consider to be the most significant elements of those sources. So don't patronise. Don't presume to have an enlightened view that lesser mortals can't possibly understand. Engage in a constructive discussion and resist the temptation, please, to trot out the tired propaganda that exists on both sides. At times like this, we all deserve the best of each other. And speaking as a foreign moderator, I also know that they have their hands full as it is, as people spend more time on social media in lockdown, and they don't want to be mopping up the mess from some ugly spat. If you can't be polite in how you're going to put things, please think twice about whether it's worth posting at all. You know the drill. The forum is always open for discussion at thenapoleonicwars.net, where you will find a room specifically for Napoleon, which I'm going to fill with key discussion topics. Remember what I said, keep it civil. I do not want to be spending the next month telling people to stop trolling and having to patronise grown adults by telling them what acceptable conduct is. You are all very welcome, whatever your opinion is, but read the forum rules and stick to them. And the reason I'm heavy-handed in saying that is that I've never known a discussion on Napoleon to not get ugly. You can find me on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory, where I will be posting votes on various aspects of Napoleon's life and legacy to get people talking. Please do join the conversation wherever you can, spread the word, and don't forget to use the hashtag Napoleon. Let's see if we can get it trending and do something productive with this time in lockdown. I'll be back soon, but until next time, I'm Zach White. This has been the first instalment of Napoleon Month on The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay home, stay safe, stay in touch with each other and stay kind. And as always, thank you for listening.